Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to sign up to become a fully paid member, and, um, uh, and that will make me very happy. I'll just put it as bluntly as that. Moreover, you'll get to read my very weird, long... Uh, G file, which is only available to paid members, where I get into the episode of Star Trek called Spock's Brain and uh, Elite Theory, as poor as established by Pareto, Mosca, and Michelle's, and how it relates to the royal family. Lots of interesting <laughs> feedback on that. Anyway, enough of all that. So, uh, longtime listeners know that a, a a dear friend of mine, and also, um. Uh, really one of the last great intellectual right-wing polymaths that is left out there um, is my friend Stephen Hayward, who, um, like, when I first met him, he was working on a book on Churchill. This was a long time ago. Um, And since then, he became a foremost expert on environmental uh, policy and whatnot when he went to, when sort of in his AI years. And but his real training is sort of in, you know, Straussian witchcraft and blood magic, but also <laughs> the Constitution and whatnot. Um, and so what I'm trying to say, oh, and he's, he's a major historian who's written one of the, the best uh, uh, books on the age of Reagan, ironically called the age of Reagan. And um, what I'm trying to say is he knows a lot about a lot, um, where I know a little about a, a lot. And a lot about a little. He knows a lot about a lot. And um, we finally got, to, we finally persuaded him to come back on the remnant. I'm not sure if he's in gold jacket territory quite yet, but it's close. Uh, Steve Hayward, welcome back to the remnant. Well, hey, Joe, it's really fun. It's been way too long since we've talked. These crazy times that we live in, right? Yeah. These, are, these, are, these, these times, they're not, they're not good. They stink. Yeah, I'm really, um, I mean, I'm, I'm as close to being depressed as I ever get these days because just things are bad. And anyway, yeah, was, that's that's also another one of the the weird things about you is that while there are rumors that you have a temper, ninety nine point nine percent of the time I've ever seen you, you are a jovial, hail and well met fellow who likes to um, see things on the brighter side. So it's a little, it's a, it's 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 fine for me to go all crushing morosity, but it's kind of <laughs> terrifying for you to go that way. Well, uh, yeah, I'll just say that the temper thing is true about once every 10 years. Uh, I will absolutely go off like a rocket. And uh, actually, it may be coming up close to 10 years, so I may be overdue. 
Uh, we'll Uh-oh. see. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, I, I, uh, I mean, I'm congenitally happy and optimistic. I'm, that's one reason among many to like Ronald Reagan, but also our late dear friend, Peter Schramm used to like to say things are serious, but not yet bad. You know, he was always <laughs> a happy guy, right? Things now are kind of bad. Uh, yeah. and getting worse. It seems like so. All right. So let me, let's, let's, let's get the, 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 dark cloud out of the way here what um um what is the i mean give me your 30,000 foot view of the 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 state of things uh let me try this way to to launch us out let's let's go back 30 years to the end of history remember that glorious moment when you know fukuyama said that right good times soviet union was extinct and we thought it was going to be free markets and liberalization in the right sense as far as the eye could see and at the time there were two voices uh, that stand out to me now who said oh no things are about to get much worse uh one was of course my teacher harry jaffa who said actually this is going to unleash the left uh, and then the other one was David Horowitz, who, you know, sometimes he can be kind of extreme and I've known David forever, but he said, no, no, the Cold War is not over. It's just now it's coming home. We now we have the Cold War at home that we otherwise call the culture war, right? So here we are today, you know, with, um, you know, the cancer culture, uh, books being censored, like, you know, Ryan Anderson's book being banned at Amazon. The Clarence Thomas movie, Amazon, no longer carries. I think, by the way, that's a blacklist against Michael Pack. I think that's not about, because he was a Trumpster, I don't think that's about Thomas. Uh, and, and then all the other madness that we see. And you wonder, you know, can it possibly go beyond Dr. Seuss? Well, yes, it can. It can be Pepe Le Pew the next day. And, and next week, we're, there's going to be a scandal about peanuts because we misgendered Peppermint Patty or something. Uh, and, and, then, and then, okay, so that's the culture side. And then there's the economic side, right? Socialism is popular again uh, with the next generation. We just uh, this. Um, I all right. I can go. I can rant too long about this. I know you have the same ones. But when I read, uh, you know, some friends of ours saying Romney Ryan conservatism is dead, and thank goodness, I say, yeah, you know, it wouldn't be bad to have some of that kind of conservatism around to argue more forcefully against the one point nine trillion dollar uh, spending package that just passed. With more of that on the way, because uh, I think that's just ruinous. So that's an opening bid. <laughs> I can, yeah, no, that's know, not bad. You, that's not bad. Okay. I mean, I, 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 I think directionally you're right. And I'll just sort of put that up front. Um, I do, you know, part of the problem is, is that there's so many examples of cancel culture out there that to sort of object to an individual one makes it sound like you don't want to even concede the point that cancel culture is out there. I do. So I think cancel culture is real. I think there's a robust left-wing version of it that is worse than the right-wing version of it, but there is a right-wing version of it too. And the reason why the left-wing version of it is worse is partly because it's so bought into like the 1619 project mindset and that kind of thing, but also because the left controls more of our major institutions and the commanding heights of the culture. And so by just by virtue of that, it's going to be worse because that's where you know, the heavy lifting of the culture is done anyway in terms of mainstream media, Hollywood, all that kind of thing. But I got to say, I cannot get nearly as excited and worked up about the Dr. Seuss thing as a lot of these other things. You know, like the Don McNeil thing, I think was really bad. Um, it sounds to me like the Mike Pesca thing at Slate was really bad. And I don't mean because I want to defend the N-word, but because of the <laughs> unthinking 
sort of anti-enlightenment way this stuff unfolds. Um, the stuff at Smith College was really bad. I mean, so there are lots of really bad ones. But this one, I mean, this is his own literary estate, which owns the books, taking six books out of its catalog because at least three of them actually really do have iffy stuff in it. And like, if I were in charge of that literary estate, I would not come out with a coffee table book of, of that guy's World War II cartoons, right? I mean, and so in a sense, what they're doing is they're trying to protect the legacy by, you know, quietly, you know, the thing I, the only thing I complain about is how they announced they were doing this. Like that was like trying to get credit for doing this when they just should have said, yeah, they're no longer in our rotation anymore and we're not selling those because there was no demand for them, blah, blah, blah. And just being quiet about it, that would have been fine. And I'll shut up in a second, but like, I remember when uh, our mutual friend, Rich Lowry, wrote a piece about some controversy about the N-word and Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn or something like that, and how pulling the, those books out of the high schools was so terrible. And I'm with him on that point, but in the column, he refused to use the N-word as well, which kind of conceded the point that maybe the N-word is, in fact, problematic. When Kevin McCarthy gets up and reads Green Eggs and Ham to protest the canceling of a different book, um, it tells you that maybe there actually was something problematic about the books that they discontinued. And, um, and I've, I, I think that the fact that the GOP spent so much more time talking about Dr. Seuss than it did about the $1.9 trillion bill is a sign that the dysfunction is bad everywhere. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with most of that. I mean, uh, I mean, well, the irony here, though, and here's where the, I don't know if it's hypocrisy or virtue signaling or the other cliches we use, because, you know, Dr. Seuss, well, Theodore Geisel was his real name, right? He was actually a right. big liberal, you know, the right. anti-war, I think, and so forth. And, and okay, so he wrote some cartoons that today look very bad to us. These things happen. Uh, it, it was the, yeah, the, but then you see eBay will not sell any of those books if you want to sell mm. it secondhand, right? You can still get Mein Comp from Amazon and on eBay, but you can't get these old Dr. Seuss books because somebody will be offended. Uh, and and I'll just so and here's where I you know I, I'm perfectly that's a good point. fine. I'll, I'll concede that's a good point. Yeah. Well, just the second point of you know the um, you know we've had several instances here in the last year of conservative professors quoting the N word from say Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. and other black writers in class. And all of a sudden you have a big commotion about this. So I'm perfectly fine if the convention is we're never going to use that even quoting it. That's fine. Um, but can I, I think we are now not far away from we won't even be able to assign it. And I'm trying mm -hmm. to track this. So, you know, some of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, both Lincoln and Douglas used the N-word in extremely unpleasant ways mm -hmm. to the contemporary ear. But I also think you want to read the entire passages. I've done this with students and say, think about, you make big students think about some things. Don't dare read the passages aloud verbatim. But I'm worried now uh, that you're not even going to be able to assign readings like that. Or you're going to have to boulderize uh, Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail. I think that's where we're tending, and it's it's gotten way out of hand. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that entirely. I mean, there is this thing out there where we are turning words into... it's it's. It, Sorcery, right? They were like we're imbuing in them like this the sound of syllables and consonants into 
conferring eldritch energies in them and names <laughs> that must not be spoken and that kind of thing. I mean, the best right. example of this was the guy out on your side of the country. Um, can't remember, was it UC, maybe it was even UC Berkeley or Caltech or something, but uh, the business school, the guy who was teaching Chinese and there's UCLA, a word. Uh, USC, right. It was USC. USC. Yeah. That right. homonetically right. sounds a little bit like the N word. And he was suspended for that. I mean, that's, that's when you're through the looking yeah. glass. But again, the yeah. other problem with this topic is like some woke person who's listening to us can all of a sudden write some thousand word piece for Salon about how you and I are defending using the N word, which I don't want to use, you know, and all the rest, right. but that's, it, it's, it's part of the weaponization of, of the, of, of all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. So, but, well, so can I, can, oh, sorry, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. No, sure, no. Sure. Well, I was going to say, I can, I can, I can maybe, if we haven't chased away our listeners yet <laughs> by reciting once again this litany of horrors, I can make a somewhat optimistic case. I can, I can cheer people up a little bit. Um, two things in particular in the last few months have heartened me greatly. One was out here in California when the left went all in to turn back Prop 209. That was the initiative California passed 25 years ago to outlaw affirmative action quotas in public contracting and college admissions. And uh, it got defeated uh, by a larger vote margin than it originally passed 25 years ago. It also did mm -hmm. poorly in a lot of Hispanic counties. You know, the, the repeal measure passed in Marin County, which white, rich white liberals, it lost in Imperial County, where, by the way, Trump did very well with Hispanic voters. Okay. Uh, and the left is saying, well, maybe people were confused and, and you know, they wrote the title and summary. They outspent the uh, the opposition to it, you know, ten to one. Um, it's really quite lame. But then, even better, and I bet you took note of this. There are those two stories in the New York Times here in the last three four weeks about France and the president of France and the education minister and a whole bunch of leading French mm -hmm. intellectuals saying um, ideas from American universities are a threat to France. And you know, they they talked about critical race theory and some of these other things. And of course, you know. Right away, I'm thinking, where did those theories originate? Usually some moronic French thinker, <laughs> right? Right, right. You, you exported the stuff, and now we're exporting it back. So that's uh, okay. Um, and But second, uh, I think this is just great fun, right? We can call them French fries again. That's one good result of this, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, I mean, when the president of France uh, is more sound on understanding this problem than the president of the United States, just to start with one person, that shows you how crazy things are. But I'm greatly hoping, uh, uh, heartened by the fact that France is saying you Americans are insane. No, I, I, or that could just simply be the ultimate sign of how bad things are. And we're just, you know, going to keep descending where even the French think we're insane. But no, I agree with you. Like it's, there's something nice about how um, these viruses escape French labs. They come to the United <laughs> States. The French think they're immune to them, but they mutate here and you get new, more virulent strains that then go back across the the pond and and, and infect them. Um, and we haven't but, found a vaccine yet. Yeah. All right. So I, I, <laughs> did you read this? I think his name is David Shore. Um, he's the socialist yeah. data geek. Right. Um, so this is, I mean, if we're looking for good news here, um, this is something I've been thinking about a lot for a while, is that the the fact that Trump gained with Hispanics and blacks very, you know, significantly with Hispanics, you know, almost anecdotally with, with blacks, but it's there in the data if you look for it. Um, and the fact that the messaging from 
Democrats about um, defund the police and whatnot were disastrous. Um, the, the, it seems to me, I mean, so like I have this ongoing theory that both parties are determined because of structural incentives to be minority parties. And, um, and we, I, I, I can make the case much more forcefully about the Republicans because there's all sorts of structural stuff in the data. They're basically a 48% party when everything's cooking with gas. Um, George W. Bush was the first, was the only Republican president to win in a long time who actually got a majority of the vote. He only did it once. And, but the Democrats, because they're, I mean, to use a term from political science, getting high on their own farts, they think <laughs> that, um, uh, that when they do all of this white supremacy talk and all of this woke stuff and all of this intersectionality stuff, they are in such ivory tower bubbles that they think that stuff is what the average black Democrat on the ground wants to hear. And it turns out they don't. In fact, the, the black Democratic, you know, the, the, the black African-Americans in the Democratic Party are to the right of white liberals by a long way, by a long shot now, which is one of the points that Shore makes. And um, I find this very heartening because I don't think it's sustainable, right? You cannot, you know, when you actually have the Jim Clyburn come out there and say, stop talking about friggin' defunding the police because most black people don't want to get rid of the police. Yeah, they want reforms and all that kind of stuff. But um, this, and I think the, one of the reasons why these, like the Elizabeth Warren types talk this way is that they have these, and I don't mean it in, I mean it in a pejorative sense, they have these <laughs> token representatives of these minority groups, including sexual minority groups, telling them that they are representative of their actual demographic and they're not. And the best example is the Latinx thing where most Hispanics have no friggin' clue what Latinx is. And they certainly don't buy into it, but elite liberals, because it's the shibboleths of the Ivy league left-wing frogs. And I think that's just very, it, it could be very strong, but it's also very brittle. And I think that cannot withstand electoral politics for very long. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, my, my, instinct about it was a lot of Hispanic voters last year were hearing over and over again, what black lives matter. And I think some of them were saying, what about Hispanic lives? I mean, don't we count as, because uh, I mean, as you know, you, you were not allowed to say all lives matter. And I understand their argument why they want to keep black lives matter a particular thing and not, okay, right. But uh, I think this, and, and Asians, I think are swinging very fast. Uh, toward Republicans. They've always been majority Democratic, but I think, um, uh, you know, I, I did look up the contributors to the no on um, what Prop 16, whatever the, the affirmative action proposition was here in California. And almost all the top donors were Asian doctors in Beverly Hills and, right. and Orange County. And, and I think you're seeing them swing very, because they understand what this is going to mean for uh, uh, you know, for Asians in California. And so, you know, it, the Democratic problem has always been, I think, well, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, the the racial axis was really black and white. And then, you know, over time with immigration and lots of other things, now it's, it, well, it's the rainbow we have, right? That was the, the original rainbow <laughs> before the, the gender revolution came along was, you know, Jesse Jackson's rainbow coalition of all kinds of right. colors. And so here's my heresy uh, that I've been trying out on some people with mixed response, and it is that the famous Bakke case in 1978 that said you can't have mm -hmm. racial quotas, 
but you can't have diversity as a factor. I've been arguing maybe that case was wrongly decided. Because, you know, in that case, uh, for listeners who don't know, the Davis Medical School reserved, I think, 23 spots for minorities. And the court said, no, you can't do that. You can't have a fixed number. But but diversity is an interest. Well, so uh, two thoughts. One is it's out of all that we've gotten the whole diversity ideology and the offices mm-hmm. of diversity and inclusion and college campuses. And uh, if you actually had said, you know, actually you can have quotas, then I think you'd have all different minority groups at each other's throat wanting higher quotas. And I think that would collapse the whole regime. And because right now, I mean, I'll tell you what really bugs me about the current moment, whether it's you know Black Lives Matter, defund the police, or diversity, equity, and inclusion, the holy trinity now of the matter, is you'll hear about some racial incident or some controversy at Smith College or wherever, and you get a statement, and they all sound like Raymond Shaw is the wisest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've mm-hmm. ever known. If you know what I mean, it really, yeah. it's amazing, the boilerplate of it that is um, and last point, now I'm rambling. Uh, I just saw a survey of students at Berkeley and something like 40% of minority students say they're not really feeling, they don't, they don't feel good about the place. They don't feel all that included. And this is going to set off the bureaucrats saying, oh, we've got to try harder. I think the opposite is the case. I think there are a lot of minorities and I've met and talked to a few who think this way. They think they're being condescended to. They don't mm-hmm. like the the rigid conformity of all this. And I think a lot of the University leaders and the whole woke mobs, they don't get this at all and are incapable of getting it. Yeah, sorry. Right, let, let's um, let's activate the uh, <laughs> constitutional and, and and philosophical subroutines in your head now. And, and <laughs> I mean, uh, make because like part of the problem with the diversity ethos. Um, or regime or whatever you want to call it is that it flies in the face of classical liberalism, right? I mean, the, the, the classical liberalism, first of all, only works if everybody has the right to be wrong about some things. That's why it's sort of set as a procedural thing. Talk about like, I mean, how, what would be the founders rebuttal? I mean, leave the actual racial issues aside, just the founders rebuttal to the, 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 the mindset of, of, the way diversity is defined these days and how it should inform politics. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think you can hardly do better than Madison's Federalist 10, you know, the, from the one everyone knows and reads, uh, where he uses the word diversity a lot. They, mm-hmm. they, were, they were into diversity before, <laughs> before we were. Uh, and of course, they understood it as you have different interests. They're all legitimate. There was never any suggestion that... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I always thought the key part of Federalist 10 was the early part saying there's two solutions to faction. One is to give everybody the same opinions. Well, that's Marxism, right? And any totalitarianism. Uh, and he says that would be worse than the disease. And he says, and, and then the other thing is, is to let them all flourish and compete, essentially. I'm right. crudely paraphrasing. And so, uh, so today, I mean, one of the more ominous things happening today is, uh, you can see this all over the place, the idea of meritocracy is under direct attack. Even the right. liberals invented it in a lot of ways uh, decades ago. And uh, you can't really attack meritocracy without also attacking individualism and judging people as individuals instead of as groups or as victims of oppression and so forth. Uh, and so that's going on very fast, very rapidly. And you know, the, there's been these moves to get rid of using uh, admissions tests, right, for uh, mm-hmm. uh, elite schools and for universities. Um, 
I, I again, I get mischievous and say, why don't we just uh, admit people to Harvard and Yale uh, uh, by lottery? Why are we bothering with all these tests and things if they're evil and class-based and so forth? Um, uh, uh, so um, statistically, that would work out, right? As long as you had the right mix of people getting the lottery tickets. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, uh, so you know, Yuval Levin makes this point, which I've incorporated into my worldview pretty firmly. That one of the key ways you can tell the difference between the left and the right is historically speaking, going and he uses in his book he goes, and his PhD dissertation, he goes back to Burke and Payne as the sort of progenitors of essentially American style or Anglo-American style left and right, is that the the verbs and adjectives of the progressive mind view is all about direction. And we're going to get to this place, right? And for the Burkean conservative types, it's about space, right? And so the in the case, the, the my favorite example of our illustration of this is the comparison between the the sort of Versailles Gardens and the English Garden. In the English Garden, the whole point is just to create a space where everything in the garden gets to be the best version of itself. And the role of the gardener is to help and to protect and fend off poachers and rabbits or whatever, but otherwise leave it alone and let things be what they are. And the goal in the, the sort of enlightened, hard left enlightenment, French enlightenment version is to twist nature into whatever shapes you want to, you know, and impose man's will on it and, you know, and make corkscrews and whatnot. And it seems to me that, that in a society that has, that takes the individual pursuit of happiness as an actual individual right, it's just impossible to have uni- statistically uniform results at the end of the day because for cultural reasons, Asian Americans, particularly ones who are one generation removed or, or first generation or whatever, they're going to have different business interests. They're going to have different cultural interests than you know wasps who've been here for 20 generations. And and everything in between. And so you're going to have, and the same thing with gender. Some women we now know, you know, are more interested in, in the softer sciences than the hard sciences for reasons that are not bad. They're just different. And I think that this is the problem of the, of the left view of society is that they want to impose a vision of what it should look like rather than give freedom for people to realize what they want to be. Yeah. Well, there you raise a whole, um, um, whole uh, parcel of contradictions and inconsistencies on the left or progressivism going back at least 100 years or further. On the one hand, uh, especially you see this with environmentalism, nature is the sacred thing. We have to protect nature. On the other hand, modern science is all about the conquest of nature for the relief of man's estate. And, you know, we want to push against the barriers of nature, if not deny them outright in certain cases. Um, and so there's that tension. The other one is um, equality. Ah, we see this happening very fast too. Equality is no longer enough, however you understand it. Not even equality of result. The new term, as you know, is equity, which really does mm-hmm. mean radical egalitarian leveling. Um, you know, any disparity, any statistical disparity you can find is proof of racism, oppression, systematic, whatever. Uh, we're, that, that is caught on very fast and seems to be the orthodoxy of the new administration. Um, and that is a little different. I mean, the old progressives, as you know, uh, they weren't that much into equality. Right? I mean, right. you think of the Thomas Leonard book about how uh, racist people like Wilson and all those progressives were about the, you know, the, uh, 
uh, uh, well, yeah, you know that literature pretty well. Uh, I do. <laughs> shed all of that. And I don't know. I, I think that's always kind of incoherent and, and always contradictory. And, and, and yet it seems hard for our, our team, if you want to put it in team sports uh, analogies, to exploit it very well. So since you masterfully steered this into my segue, um, <laughs> you mentioned the inconsistencies and the contradictions within liberalism. What the hell do you think is going on with conservatism? And I, and I mean that not in terms yeah. of, we could talk about the Republican Party, but I mean like right. the old fusionist consensus. Right. Uh, there are a lot of people who are saying it's gone. I'm not as sure they're right because I think there's a lot of motivated reasoning in there. but what are you what is your take on the state of intellectual conservatism or philosophical conservatism yeah i um I, as i think you know i'm i'm working on a biography of stan evans you know my first mentor out of college and i'll tell you it's been a blessed distraction from all that's going on right now right to to read about happier times i'll put it that way you know stan started cpac in 1974 and Mm-hmm. Those early CPACs were a very different animal than they've become in recent years. Uh, and then, of course, he was a great fusionist. He was a great friend of Frank Myers and a great uh, – he didn't like that term, though. Uh, we could say mm-hmm. a little more about that. Uh, I wish Stan were still with us. Uh, I think he would be dismayed about things like uh, – well, this is something I picked up in the last uh, nine months is more and more conservatives are using the phrase neoliberalism. In exactly the same way the left has been using it for 15, 20 years, and actually increasingly agree with the left on certain parts of the leftist critique of you know big banks and finance capitalism, and uh, and then I wake up and uh, you know I see Oren Cass. I like Oren. I know him some, and and I keep scratching my head saying, well, my the one critique I've been using is so you're all saying that Walter Mondale can now run for president as a Republican. Right, because they're calling for industrial policy and subsidies yeah. and trade protection and content law. I, I mean, an awful lot of what people like him are advocating is uh, almost indistinguishable from what Walter Mondale and, and the, the so-called New Democrats were advocating in the mid 1980s. It horrified the rest of us, right? And I don't see, as a policy matter, we go back to the philosophical parts of this, which are more important. But as a policy matter, I don't see how you can make that work without ending up with ten ethanol subsidy programs and mm-hmm. 10 you know windmill subsidies that we don't need and shouldn't have and are incredibly distorting of markets and so, so i don't see how this works in practice uh, i understand well, I mean, just the, one point on that which i've been harping yeah. on for a while and i brought up with him when i talked to him and and uh and, and listeners should listen very closely to the interview that we had he was on the dispatch podcast with sarah and, and declan last friday and i have i have I have many pointed things to say about it, which I will not <laughs> go into now. But, uh, um, you know, Friedrich Hayek, when he wrote about the knowledge problem, he wasn't writing about how liberals are, you know, can't plan because liberalism has bad ideas and bad plans. He was talking about the fundamental problem of planning and the inability of experts and bureaucrats from far off to impose their will in a complicated Society, and it's not about just because you're a social conservative, just because you're Sora Bamari and you have a I sent or Orrin Cass and you have a sense for what the higher good is in Aristotelian terms, doesn't mean you're any better at economic planning than you know some li- liberal social planner, right? Yeah, we're in heated agreement on that. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, 
I, I, uh, the other person I wish was with us now is Milton Friedman, who could not only mm-hmm. echo what you just said, but also explain to us why we haven't seen massive inflation from where the Federal Reserve is being. Maybe we're going to get that. That's one of my great fears right now. But I, I'm, I, I, I mean, I'm just gobsmacked at uh, how quickly certain old orthodoxies and core principles have been are now sneered at uh, and thrown over the side. And in part, I mean, I didn't really necessarily want to go here. It's partly because Trump has just disrupted everybody, <laughs> right? I mean, he's, he really was the great disruptor, yeah. and he's just scrambled everybody's mind. And um, and who and who knows how long this uh, – it may fundamentally change things. Uh, we'll see. You know, I think this – maybe this doesn't bear on your question. I've been thinking lately the great what if that I keep pondering, and you never can really play out these counterfactuals, but what if Robert Taft had actually been – elected president in 1948 or, or even 1952, which doesn't work because he died a year later of cancer. But, you know, he was, uh, Milton Friedman told me once that Robert Taft, of all the politicians he ever met, he thought was the most talented and brightest of all of them. And, you know, he met a lot of them and respected, mm-hmm. you know, he, he thought Nixon was very bright and of course loved Reagan, but Taft was the person he told me he was the most impressed with. And I don't know if things might have gone differently or not. Uh, you can't really say, but I think that was, um, you know, one of those inflection points that, looking back, you sort of wonder how things might so have gone. I, I have a question for you. Um, I mentioned at the top of this that I've been reading my Pareto and elite theory stuff a bit <laughs> lately, and right. and you know, and and Pareto had this uh, theory, which I think has a lot of merit to it, um, about elite circulation and 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 how one group of elites replace another group of elites and, and whatnot. And, um, and, and Schumpeter, part of his whole argument about how the new class is going to lead to show socialism was really an argument about elite circulation where the kids who grow up as the children and grandchildren of the industrialists, they become interested in manipulating words and ideas. And then they use words and ideas to dethrone the old style, um, rulers and they make the, 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 the virtues of the old rulers into vices, um, the way Nietzsche, Nietzsche talks about in genealogy of morals. And, um, and that's how, like, so like, I mean, not to dwell on Orrin Cass, but Orrin Cass uses the term market fundamentalist to discredit his opponents in the um, intellectual sphere where he is concentrated. And when you ask for, or when he has asked for evidence that these people are all market fundamentalists, it gets really small and anecdotal really, really quickly. Um, a tweet by Nikki Haley, an offhand comment by an economist somewhere. And then in, in, in this interview that I was referencing, he's asked about where, um, uh, you know, about the left's criticisms of his uh, child tax stuff or whatever his position is. And he says, well, look, it's not like we're a socialist country to begin with. I mean, you know, George W. Bush and welfare reform and all of these kinds of things. I was, well, wait a second. You've just been saying for 30 years that the Republican Party has been consumed by market fundamentalism. And then all your responses to the left are about how it's never been market fundamentalist and compassionate conservatism and all of these things were, you know, uh, counterbalances against this stuff. And so when you brought it, what made me think about this is one, because it's stuck in my head, but two is when you mentioned Taft and stuff, my friend Michael Bowen had this book about this period of, of the sort of precursor fights um, um, of the, it was called The Roots of Modern Conservatism, Dewey Taft and the Battle for the Soul of the Republican Party. Oh, and right. part yeah. of his argument was that the, um, 
the 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 Tafters in part cultivated their sort of pre-Goldwater, Goldwaterite, Goldwaterite ideology as a way to distinguish themselves from the Deweyites who beat them. And then it became a self-fulfilling prophecy that they became more invested in their ideological stuff and they were off to the races. And then you get Goldwater versus Nixon and you get, you get all of that. And so my point is that a lot of the people I hear, particularly some of the guys on the West Coast that you're sort of fraternally friends with, a lot of their arguments about the Washington establishment and the think tank Republican and the old fusionists and all that kind of stuff, this is just nearest weapon to hand elite game game theory of figuring out a way to talk out the existing elites and then replace them with your own faction. And it has very it has much less to do with ideas than I would have thought. At least that's how it feels to me. What do you think about that? You know, I think, uh, look, I'm big into theory. I think the explanation may be simpler than that to some extent. Um, first of all, I'm right with you in thinking that compassionate conservatism was a big blunder 20 years ago. I could go on a sort of field theory about waves. And, it certainly wasn't market fundamentalism. Right? No, it I mean, wasn't. <laughs> absolutely not. No. I mean, yeah. you got, uh, you know, George W. Bush, like his father, uh, was uh, didn't stand up to new regulations much at all. Uh, but I also think, uh, again, this gets back to the why Trump has uh, um, you know, become, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what phrase I want to use. Um, you know, the disruptor is the familiar one, but but I think part of what happened is, is that a lot of conservatives were tired of losing. They thought McCain shouldn't have lost to Obama. They thought Romney shouldn't have lost in 2012. And along comes Trump, who no one thought was going to win. And he won in such dramatic fashion and attracted the Reagan Democrats back that had drifted off during the Clinton and Bush, Bush, uh, W. Bush years. And so that, I think uh, a lot of people said, oh, I guess we, so I, part of what's going on, I'll start over again. Part of what's going on is I think a lot of people are looking for a kinder, gentler version of Trumpism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually think it might be that simple. And, you know, on the substance, there's, there's something to it. But boy, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater um, when we you yes, know, start I, using things like market fundamentalism and such. So, I mean, I, I, I agree with you and I disagree with you. Um, and I think part of the problem is, is that, and this is one of my big beefs with conservative movement, which is part of my growing period, I suppose, is that I think too many conservatives are too concerned about being political consultants for the GOP. And it ends up sort of infecting how they think about these things. And, um, and it works the other way too. Too many politicians think that they have to have sort of serious policy ideas that represent what Trumpism is. And so you have Marco Rubio with his common good capitalism and whatever Holly is doing this week and all the rest. And, um, and so putting on my pundit hat rather than my conservative hat, uh, I just think it's flawed analysis. The idea that Donald Trump won large numbers of Obama Trump voters because of his policy positions is at best unproven and to me sort of un- utterly unpersuasive. Certainly his, you know his hallmark issue, his hallmark victory, legislative victories were all basically pre-Trump Paul Ryan stuff, right? And Mitch McConnell stuff, the judges, the tax cuts, all of that kind of thing. And yet 
Holly and Cotton and and Cruz and these pe- and Cass and these people, they think the way you get these voters is by not doing that stuff, as if like there's the connective tissue there, and I just don't think there is. And I also just think, as again, using a pundit hat, this uh, this monomaniacal focus on winning these what five or seven or twelve million voters, whatever the number is, of of historically unreliable voters that Trump brought into the party at the expense of the normally reliable suburbanite voters who were, you know, you could expect to always show up at the polls is it's, it's like the salesman saying, sure, we're losing money on every sale, but we'll make it up in volume. You know, I mean, I, 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 no one (laughs) has persuaded me how, you know, it's, it's, it's just focusing all on one demographic and think that's the key to having a huge GOP coalition. And I just, I, I, no one's persuaded me that that's how it actually works. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, I think that's a, a quite reasonable perspective on things. I do think there are a couple of particular things that I have stumbled across that get surprisingly little attention. Because you know, now that I'm you know I'm an inmate at Berkeley, I consume a lot of social science and go to a lot of workshops with the people who do these multiple regression analyses of things. And I'm I sorry. did see, I know it's for my sins. I, you know, somebody has to do it. I did see a very interesting piece of analysis from 2016 or out of 2016 that showed that there was considerable enthusiasm for Trump in those upper Midwestern states among anti-war voters, people mm-hmm. who are war-weary, um, people who like the fact that he said Iraq was a stupid war and we're not going to do that kind of thing again. That's where, you know, there are a lot of gold star families up there. And, you know, fair or unfair that Bush and, you know, the the whole neocon business, which is also overstated, of course, but nonetheless, it's mm-hmm. out there. Um, and an election that's that close, it probably could be said to have made a difference in certain areas. Add to that some of the other slices. You know, immigration was big for some people, obviously. Uh, I don't. I do think that just copying those issue positions doesn't explain things and doesn't work. I think you know Trump's personality was a part of it, mm-hmm. uh, and that's not replicable. I don't think. Uh, and I think, you you know, this, the uh, politicians who tried to I- uh, imitate Trump, they haven't done very well, I don't think. Except, you know, certain House members and certain super safe Republican districts carry on like crazy people. But I don't think it works much beyond that. I don't know. Um, all right. So let's let's turn the telescope around and look back yeah, okay. further. Yeah. Um, um, I recall, I believe it was in the Reagan book, and someone mentioned something along these lines on Twitter, um, that you used to be fairly bullish on the institution of the presidency and that Congress oh, was too, right. too much of an ankle biter on the presidency. And I used to have that position more or yeah. less. Um, and I've, this is one of the things where I've changed my mind on this. And I think a lot of our problems in American life aren't necessarily because of an imperial presidency, but they are because of an utterly incompetent and dysfunctional Congress. And again, I know I keep plugging it, but Ben Sass's little seven minute tutorial on what Congress is for at the beginning of the Kavanaugh hearings was very, very useful. It's where politics is supposed to happen. And if politics happens there, even gladiatorial politics, it means we'll have less politics in our daily lives, which is a much healthier thing. And I think that the, in much the same way that the Federalist Society and people like you um, 
helped restore the argument about the role of courts in America is central to the conservative movement. The next 40 years has got to be the, the next argument is how Congress needs to be Congress again. And I'm just wondering where you see all that. Yeah, no, I have substantially changed my mind too. But partly it's because experience has taught us that the problem was worse than we thought. I say the problem, the problem of, you know, as we Claremonsters monsters have always said, the administrative state, which is not mm. the same as the deep state, which is sort of taken over, unfortunately. But leave that aside for now. Uh, I think that uh, the argument 30, 40 years ago was Congress sets up these bureaucracies and spending programs and then micromanages them and handcuffs the executive. Uh, and certainly Congress was very skillful in the, especially the House, which was Democrat through all eight of Reagan's years, very skillful at harassing the Reagan administration and oversight and in budget appropriations and so forth. Uh, and the Reagan people said, okay, fine, we'll try and use executive power to fight back on this. And at the time, you know, it was, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And my favorite right. example is, uh, I don't know if, how closely you follow these things, but, you know, friends of ours like Peter Wallison down the hall at AEI mm -hmm. did. There's the famous Chevron case, which now comes up in hearings for, you know, potential Supreme Court justices. The Chevron case was about a vague congressional statute, the Clean Air Act, which, first of all, the Reagan people came in and said, we'll repeal the Clean Air Act. Well, Congress wasn't going to do that. Right. And the statute had, well, that lawsuit, the, the Chevron case, was about one word in the statute. The word was source. What is a source? The environmentalists wanted to be every little gizmo at a, a refinery or chemical plant or factory, and therefore EPA could regulate every little widget, you know, hundreds and hundreds of things in every factory. The Reagan EPA said, no, no, we think source should be the entire refinery, and that way it gives us flexibility to do things that are cost-effective to reduce pollution. Makes perfect sense from a wonky point of view. Mm -hmm. And the court said, yeah, that makes sense to us. If Congress didn't define source, you can define source. So here's the point. The Reagan administration won that case, and yet today the Chevron doctrine of deference to regulatory agencies is considered by all of our friends at the Federal Society as one of the worst backstops for the administrative state, right? Right. And so who knew that what was uh, thought to be a great victory for Reaganism and Reagan's sensible administration turned out to be a strategic defeat in the long run? That's just one little part of it, but I think it's very good illustration of, oh, this is actually a more complicated problem than we thought, and getting Congress to behave itself and legislate. I had some optimism that Trump, for his you know various defects and superficialities, might prompt Congress to step up and legislate more precisely, but it didn't see much evidence of that happening, unfortunately. Yeah, bless your heart. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, for me, the, 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 in the Trump era, the, other than the fact, I mean, I, I mean, just so listeners know, I, I mean, so, you know, I, I, listeners know this, I consider Matt Gates um, to be emblematic of almost everything that's going wrong with the Republican party and the conservative movement and Congress, because he wants to be a pundit and he thinks that being a congressman is the best platform to be a pundit. But so does, he's just, he's a cartoonish version of this phenomenon, which is all over the place. And in the Trump administration, remember when, um, I'm going to pull a Biden here, uh, the attorney general, <laughs> uh, Bill Barr, he was asked to come testify about some legitimate thing that Congress should ask about. And I can't remember if it was the, the protest stuff, you know, or, or some other thing, but it was like a legitimate, serious thing. And he hadn't been there for a while. And just as a matter of good government 
you would want to hear his version of things. As a conservative, you would want to hear his version of the things. And as a liberal, you would want to hear it just because it was important and he was the attorney general and he had the president's ear. And nobody in the hearing would let him speak. <laughs> and not only would they not let him speak, but Republicans and Democrats alike all gave the same speeches. I mean, the Republicans all gave one version and the Democrats all gave one version because the problem was, remember that scene in, in The Right Stuff where he says, I think everything that can be said has been said, but not everybody has said it. Everybody wanted to have their own little video that they sent home to their own local television stations and their own districts and their own Facebook page of them being outraged by X or Y. And in the meantime, like, if I had been a Republican in there, even though I'm a harsh, harsh critic of Donald Trump, I would have said, hey, you know, Mr. Attorney General, would you like my time to answer some of these questions? But no one wanted him to answer anything because it was all for, it was all performative. And I think that is the really damning part. I mean, I agree with you about Chevron and non-delegation stuff and all that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a cultural thing now where people just use these institutions to, to preen for. Yeah, that's been a long time coming. And for reasons you have talked about often, which is the weakening of political parties as institutions. You know, everybody now is uh, a free agent and uh, party labels are almost a, just a convenience. Uh, and I don't know how we get back to that. I, I will say that, you know, again, part of my book research recently, I've been reading some old committee hearing transcripts from the 70s. And I'm amazed by two things. One is uh, questions and answers. And everybody shows up, not everybody shows up, but a lot of people show up for the hearings. And it's right. not just performance art. And uh, gosh, what a wonderful time that was. Uh, and I don't know how to get that back. So I don't, I don't know if you read the piece or listened to the podcast. I'm, this is a rapid change in gears. So, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, keep your, um, arm yourself against whiplash. Um, <laughs> Stephanie Slade at Reason, she did this piece about fusionism. And I had her on the podcast while I was trapped in Austin. Um, and <laughs> we were mostly in violent agreement about what fusionism actually was versus the sort of story that people talk about fusionism. But I was wondering if you had thoughts on the piece. Um, if, I mean, her, to summarize, her argument is, is that fusionism was less a coalitional thing and more of an actual philosophical position um, that reconciled different parts of the Western tradition, which I think is what Stan Evans would believe too, right? Yep. I mean, so anyway, yeah. uh, what'd you think of all that? Yeah, I, I read the piece and I, I heard her, I didn't hear her on your podcast, but I heard her on a different one. And um, at first I thought, oh, she's off on the wrong track because she, but then I realized she was describing what we used to call the three-legged stool of electoral politics for conservatives, right? Right. And then she went on to say what you just said, which is, no, no, it's actually a deeper philosophical thing, which I think is right. Uh, and so there I'm like all for it. And I'm you know, glad to see people coming back to this. Um uh, I don't have too much to add to it, except to, I guess my, the gloss I'd add is, well, uh, the argument, the way, you know, Stan Evans put it was, the reason he didn't like the term fusionism is it implies that there are two things that we're pushing together that don't belong with each other naturally. And he thought, no, no, mm -hmm. liberty and virtue are natural allies and reciprocal allies of one another. You can't have one without the other and vice versa. And I don't, I may, you know, I may, I may write something about this, you know, for my sins in the world of energy, I've actually toured the Max Planck fusion lab in Germany and the Princeton plasma physics lab that's in Princeton, as you might guess, and learned a lot about the challenges of it. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but the problem with fusion energy has always been 
how do you get this reaction to be stable without putting more energy in than you get back out? And how do you get this million degree temperature going inside a contained vessel and then tap the heat to run a turbine? And simple in theory, it's proving really difficult in practice. All right. Uh, I think there might be a parallel to fusionism in politics. And part of what I think is, is, you know, the, the fusionism of the sun doesn't need any help from us. It just goes of its own. And mm-hmm. if we get to the point where we're saying we lack virtue or we're indifferent to individual liberty, a philosophical, in other words, the paradox is if we having to go back to this philosophical discussion, it means we're in deep trouble. And mm-hmm. I don't want to say it means it's too late. That's what the pessimist said 60, 70 years ago. Uh, yet we're still here. <sighs> uh, I think we'll still be here. I don't know what condition, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad this, uh, this argument has been revived. And it may yet rescue us, I think, from some of these um, policy directions that we've just been lamenting a few minutes ago. Yeah, I mean, um, the thing I, the essay I keep coming back to this uh, guy Daniel Burns wrote a piece, liberal theory, liberal practice in um, National Affairs a year or two ago, and I had him on the podcast, and he makes it. I, it's one of those things that I wish I had read before I wrote my book, rather than after I wrote my <laughs> book, because it was just very clarifying. And but part of the point he just simply makes is that there's lots of interesting stuff in liberal theory that we just discarded because it didn't work on the ground in on a cultural sort of Hayekian deal with reality through trial and error kind of way. And there's a lot of stuff in our culture that is, that we call liberal, that is liberal, that doesn't comport with liberal theory. And that's okay. And the only reason I bring it up is that this is very much a sort of a Stan Evans point and a, very much a um, um, fusionist point is just that our culture is liberal in the, in the classical sense. And it's, uniquely liberal in the sense in, in, in all sorts of ways. And it kind of doesn't matter if it doesn't line up perfectly with Locke or Montesquieu or whatever, because we figured out how to make it sort of work. And the good news about that is that means that we have a certain amount of antibodies in our culture against non-liberal stuff because the culture itself is liberal, regardless of the mechanisms of government. Yeah, the, the worry has always been, are we living off the moral capital of, you know, decades and centuries and depleting it too fast? And so, I, I mean, I, you know, I think you share this criticism with me of libertarians is I always say to people, whenever I hear a new public policy idea, the first thing I do is ask a libertarian about it because they will tell you right away what the problem is, what the perverse results will be, what the unintended consequences are, why the market logic would suggest you do something different. Right. Uh, and, and then, but the, um, the, the, and again, they don't want to do too broad a brush because there are lots of different shadings of libertarians, but the most extreme ones like Ayn Rand, right? Uh, their anthropology is very, it's not this hostile to virtue necessarily. Rand had a theory of virtue that may be very narrow, but it's that they're such individualists and they're not, mm-hmm. you know, they, they neglect the community part. Is that, is that the combined chef or the gazelle chef part? I never forget which one is which, right? But one of those and the way and, i always remembered then, is is gazelle has the word sell in it and that means ah, it's for contracts and commerce and okay. gamine means <laughs> what i care about most being mine it says mine in it my little <laughs> okay. memory trick <laughs> yeah uh anyway uh i'm not sure what else I have to add while that except uh uh well so i mean one of the paradoxes of modern times harvey mansfield's makes this point i think it's harvey that you know the word virtue used to be 
uh, used to mean not exactly manliness, but that was one expression of it, right? There's mm-hmm. strength and um, uh, abilities and characteristics. Uh, and in modern times, it, it came to mean protecting female chastity, right? Virtue. Uh, <laughs> and and all, likewise, prudence, the old high term of statesmanship, prudence is sort of related to all that. Um, you know, George H.W. Bush saying, wouldn't be prudent, right? Uh, and and so those terms have been devalued and I think not taken as seriously, even by the people who I sometimes call virtue crats. <laughs> right? yeah. um, even though there aren't really many people out there who are, you know, the left is obsessed with certain people on the Christian right who they think really want to impose a theocracy on the country. And you can find a few such people if you look around hard enough, but the prospect of this really getting very far is you know, less than nil. Um, but the left can't let go of it anyway. Yeah. And also part of it is, Victim blaming is what they do is they go out and they find these like traditional Christian communities. They try to impose their worldview on them. And then when those communities fight back and say, no, leave us alone. They say, how dare you try to impose your values on us? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Which is, you know, and like, I mean, the the left isn't wrong in every aspect of the culture war, but they are the aggressors in the culture war. I mean, you know, and, and maybe that's changing now, whether that's good or bad is a, conversation for another time but historically speaking i think that's indisputable yeah so uh when is the stan evans book out and why don't you tell people a little why don't you whet people's appetite a little bit about stan evans because stan evans is one of these guys who he's not zelig right i mean he play he's a participant in things but he shows up yeah. in these places at and times and he's kind of like i always thought of him as a little bit sort of like a Tom Hagen figure to Buckley's mm. Don Corleone. He's, he's the guy who actually gets some of this stuff done. Um, yes. But maybe I'm, I'm wrong about that. So no, no, you're, you're, he, I, he was in the middle of just about everything from you know, the mid fifties when he gets out of Yale and the modern conservative movement is launching at that very time. Uh, you know, he wrote the Sharon statement. That's the founding document of young Americans for freedom. Never took any credit for that. Cause when you ask him to say, well, I was just, stating the common sense of the matter, the way Jefferson talked about the Declaration of Independence. Uh, He uh, wrote the um, the declaration of what was known as the Manhattan 12. They were the 12 conservatives in 1971 who suspended support for Nixon. And I found, by the way, a long memo from Henry Kissinger about a meeting with Evans in the White House that was very sharp. Um, (laughs) uh, Obviously, Kissinger taped it and had it transcribed, so it's wonderful stuff. Uh, and then he also wrote a statement in early 1982 of conservative dismay with Reagan. Uh, anyway, he was in the middle of everything. And, you know, like I say, he started CPAC. He thought what conservatives needed was a pep rally. And they thought they'd just do it once, but it was so successful, they kept doing it. And then he wrote all these books uh, that are, I had not read his early books, like his first book called Revolt on the Campus in 1960. Uh, which is kind of a very interesting book. Um, And then he did a lot of journalism, of course. And then his last two books, The Theme of Freedom is his philosophical book. And then his last book around 2008 or so was Blacklisted by History, which was a a defense of McCarthy uh, Mm -hmm. to a very large extent. And we had him on Think Tank when I was producing that show to talk about that. And that that got interesting pretty quickly. Um, Oh, I'll bet. Yeah. You know, he really, uh, the, the work he put into that and unearthing documents that have never been seen is just quite amazing. Um, and so he died in 2015. And he was a, one thing about Stan is, I, you know, you met him a few times. Nice guy, mm-hmm. funny as hell. I, I'm trying to work in all of his best jokes <laughs> along the way. 
and he died in 2015. And because he was so modest uh, and never blew his own horn, he's kind of being forgotten already, which I think is unfortunate. Yeah. But I think my favorite, you know, his great art was uh, taking a liberal cliche and inverting it. So, you know, you may be old enough to remember the editorial trope of the 60s. Um, any country that can land a man on the moon can solve X problem, you know, poverty, right. crime, whatever. Stan's version was any country that can land a man on the moon can abolish the income tax, <laughs> which I thought was great. And he was full of those, you know. Oh, he loved to prank liberals by saying, I didn't agree with what Joe McCarthy was trying to do, but I sure admired his methods. And they take him seriously, right? <laughs> and then finally, yeah, I, I, sorry, it's all going to be in the book, but the other one is uh, he'd say, my advice to young people is when you're young, you should be conservative. And then as you get older, you should become more conservative. <laughs> so that's how it certainly worked for me. <laughs> um, and so do you, you, I mean, we're, we're coming up on the hour here, but uh, yeah. you know, I like talking to you and um, I like testing. This is something I used to do when we were at AI. I like testing out right. theories on you. So um, uh, I think you probably agree with me. I'd be kind of shocked if you didn't, that one of the major, not the sole, but one of the major explanations for the great awakening we're seeing in a lot of these institu elite institutions is that the sort of Jonathan Haidt thesis about kids being raised fragile, then they go to school and they um, imbibe all of the trigger warning stuff, right? And then they basically were exporting campus, left-wing campus culture into journalism and other institutions. And these young, and that's why a lot of these institutions, the Gen X and young boomer staff at these places are management are terrified of the young people who come in. And that's how we see all these internal cancellations at the New York times and whatnot. I think you probably agree with me in broad brushstrokes that that's at least one factor I have, but you're absolutely free to differ with me on that. I had this epiphany the other day that I've been thinking about. I think you can explain a big chunk. Certainly again, not all, because Trump is such a giant magnet next to the compass that distorts everything. But you can explain a big chunk of the waywardness of a lot of the sort of performative asininity of certain segments of the right by the fact that we are actually exporting campus right-wing culture into our national politics and journalism as well. You know, there's this, I've been trying to tell college kids, right-wing kids, I've done a lot of stuff for, Young America's Foundation, and you can call it YAF now and all that. Yeah. And, um, um, and when I was talking to purely conservative kids, I would be, you know, I, I would do a lot of red meat stuff. But if there was a mixed audience, I would try to persuade people. And, but one of the points I'd always make to the, the young right wingers is just because rudeness is, um, on PC is not an argument for being rude absent any other thing, right? If you, if you're going to, Shock people, that's fine, but it's got to have a point. It's got to help make an argument in some grand sense. If it's just you being a jerk to make people angry, then you're actually hurting your own cause. And I think that that advice was warranted, but that attitude of just, you know, that sort of Milo, stick your thumb in people's eyes, anger people, um, that's been exported into big chunks of sort of big right-wing media, including at Fox News. And it's, it's not nearly as big a problem as what's going on on the left, I, I would argue. 
but it explains some of what's going on on the right. What do you think of that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I have lots of thoughts on that. I've talked a lot with uh, actually college administrators about why do students want to have Milo on campus? Because they want to give a middle finger back to the campus culture they think is so unremittingly hostile to them. And I often point out, you don't see as much of that at places like Princeton. Why? You have Robbie George in the Madison Center. Uh, you, you see much less of this where there is conspicuous conservatism on campus, I think. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but the first point is, uh, uh, I have a different theory. I think your theory is uh, is not wrong. I have a different one. You know, the whole business with safe spaces, that starts around 2012, 2013, explodes really fast. Something else starts to happen around then. So uh, I'll put it this way. I think this kind of goes in waves. Uh, once again, let's go back to where we started and we can end there. You go back to around 1990 and the end of history. You may remember there was, well, you were, you know, almost finishing college then. A lot of the whole first wave of political correctness controversies happened then. Mm-hmm. And there's that Zach Goldberg guy at Georgia State. No relation to you, I take it. Uh, I don't no. know if you're familiar with him. You should have him on sometime. Um, and he has actually done the data on this. And what you saw, lots of news stories, lots of campus controversies. And then they kind of died out and things calmed down again. Now go back to about 2013 and our mutual friend Charles Murray starts to have fusses again about him coming and speaking on campus after years of you know, mostly just going just fine. And suddenly Mm -hmm. he was radioactive again. This is before Trump, by the way. I remember talking to him at the time and saying, what's going on here? He was getting attacked again in the Mm left-wing press. He hadn't done anything new. I mean, I guess coming apart came out, but okay. But the left should not dislike coming apart either. I mean, exactly. Well, once again, it would help if they read it, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, we, we talked about this and he had a theory that I've sort of amplified a little bit, which is, he thinks that both the PC eruptions of the 1990 era and then again around 2013 or so was an expression of the frustration of the left that things weren't going well for them. You know, Obama was a disappointment in a lot of ways. What do you get from mm-hmm. Obama? You got Obamacare, which is pretty crappy. And, and, and then, you know, by the time you get to write 1990, well, first of all, the biggest best-selling book in intellectual world was Alan Bloom. And they hated that. Mm-hmm. And you had, you know, 12 years of the Reagan-Bush terror. And then Clinton mm-hmm. comes along and a little happier and things settle down. And by the end of Obama, they're frustrated. By the way, I think this traces back to the progressive impatience of wanting to push the tide of history faster because they're on the mm-hmm. side of history. I, I can't, I, I don't have data for this beyond just noticing you can count, you know, news stories and incidences on campus and so forth. And then suddenly, you know, we get to three, three years later and Charles Murray, you know, practically gets beat up on a college campus appearance. And you have a riot in Berkeley with when Milo shows up. Uh, and so I don't know. I think these things kind of go in cycles. And the left is, um, it'll be interesting to see how happy the left can be made with Biden, who's governing much further to the left than I expected him to. I'm really kind mm-hmm. of shocked in some ways. Um, uh, so that's one of my field theory about it, uh, is uh, you're seeing that uh, the progressive philosophy, which is always just part of their furnishings in their minds, is just, uh, uh, you know, it's just running amok. And- College administrators, I'll say one more thing about it. This is easy to fix on college campuses. You just have to have a few administrators say no, and it will all go away. And there have been some examples of this, like the University of Chicago recently, a geology professor, made a pretty strong attack on the diversity ideology. A couple hundred graduate students go nuts. They want his classes canceled. They want graduate students to be uh, uh, prohibited from working with him, et cetera, et cetera. And the president of the university, Bob Zimmer, 
put out a statement saying, nope, no, that's going to happen. We're for free speech here and academic freedom. And that's the end of this. And that was the end of it. Yeah. And I don't know why more uh, college, uh, well, I, I do know they're afraid of the students. I've heard them say this. Yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, that's sort of part of my theory is that the, the older people are afraid of younger people. And I think, you know, the, the idea that Kevin, my friend, our friend, Kevin Williamson was <laughs> threatening the physical safety of women at the Atlantic when Kevin lived in Texas and wouldn't even be in the office and yeah. wouldn't threaten anyone's physical safety in the first place. And people bought it is because there people are suckers f- to buy into the, the delicate sensibilities of younger people. And, um, or at least a lot of liberals are. And I, I suspect there's some of that on the right, but not nearly as much. Um, you know, it's sort of the difference. I mean, this does get to the psychology of things. This is a point I always make the, uh, since you talk about Stan Evans. The Sharon statement was, correct me if I'm wrong, 258 words, 312 <laughs> something, words, like I mean, that, some, right. something like that. It fits yeah. on a page. Yes. The Port Huron statement, which it's the alternative <laughs> to, is 50,000 words or something like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's 6,000, but it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah but, or, like, it's 6,000, but it's, right. it's, it's or, like, Still, it, right. but I remember, yep. yeah, anyway, it's some massive, you know, talking about how we live in comfort and it's talking about our right. feelings and all of this kind of <laughs> <Right>. stuff. Um, <laughs> and I think that's one of these sorts of, it's definitely one of these differences, but um, I don't, I don't dispute your theory. I, you know, this podcast stands, you know, athwart all monocausal explanations of anything. Many theories can work in tandem. I just think that the, the Jonathan Haidt argument about how, cause I, I just see it yeah. in my kid and his, her generation. Right where these kids are told that the worst thing in the world you can be is a bully, that the worst thing you can do to someone yeah. is hurt their self-esteem, you, or make someone feel uncomfortable, you send those people into college. This is the, that is the, the lumpen proletariat that the, the administrators have been waiting for for 100 years. Is because that's, that is the, the feedstock. I mean, you made this point to me about how you know, one of the reasons why they have to have this constantly ratcheting up of of feminist crises on college campuses is that, that the, no one wants to take women's studies courses. And, <laughs> yeah. and um, this is the first generation, I think, that in a large mass organic sense is inclined to take women's studies courses because they've internalized this idea that their feelings are paramount and, and, and all of this stuff. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, I, I just talk about, I maybe, maybe you are too, the last generation that grew up without bike helmets. Um, you know, we're, we're just more risk tolerant those days. I think I went through a period of maybe five years between maybe the ages of eight or nine and 13, where I, I never didn't have a scab on a knee or an elbow just yeah, because no, of, me too. <laughs> right. Right. And are I you, almost no kids these days. Right. Are you very young boomer or are you old Gen X? I'm very young boomer. Yeah. yeah. I, I was um, born in 58. Boomer ends in 63, 64, something like that. I think that's that, right. Think. Yeah. 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 Um, because I always say that mine is the last generation to grow up with something that looked like a common culture because yeah. there was no internet yeah. and there's no, none of the balkanization right. stuff. And, and, uh, and I hate generational analysis, but that doesn't mean it because it's overused. That doesn't mean it has yeah. no merit. Um, right. So, uh, very quickly, um, People wanted your steak wine recommendations, and and so. <laughs> All right. Well, what, I, I like ri- ribeye is my favorite. 
Uh, a New York is fine. Brisket is great. But ribeye is the thing that just takes the most, uh, you know, most ways to do it well, I think. And it's got the most fat in it. You want a good fat steak. Uh, and you know, any good red wine. I mean, I'm partial to good older California Cabernets, but a good Syrah's fine. Somebody said on Twitter, whiskey or wine. I said, what's this or business? Embrace the power of and. Yeah. Um, it's a false know, choice. Both, That's crazy. Talk. Exactly. <laughs> right. Crazy. Um, talk. Yeah. <laughs> and someone said, someone said in that follow-up that, and I think it was Kent Lastman, our friend at CI who started that. But ah. Like, um, I think Someone said, well, it should be wine and then after dinner, whiskey. And I, I think that's wrong, too. It should be oh, whiskey yeah. before dinner, then wine with dinner, then whiskey as a follow-up afterwards. Yeah, um, that was that was Lynn Kiesling, who's very smart on energy stuff, but I'm, I'm doubting her on her order of alcohol consumption. I'm, I'll tell her um, that, too. <laughs> okay. I, I'm only asking because I want, well, two reasons. One, I want to know, and two, I have an answer. What do you think is the most underrated cut of beef was most underrated steak not the best you said ribeye yeah what do you think right. is most underrated oh shoot um hanger steak maybe? yes that is correct answer yeah ah okay good um <laughs> and I, I i find it lamentable that people are real I, only reason i bring this up is because it's dawning on people so i can't stop it but um it used to be you could get hanger incredibly cheap and if you marinate it right and you grill it or broil it right in terms of flavor fat all that kind of and texture. If you do hang her right, I, it is up there with yeah. any other cut. I think. Yeah. I think the most overrated is fillet. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, it can be wonderful, but it's just not a lot. As, as Churchill might say, there's not a there's not a, a theme to the pudding. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm trying to think: is there any other quality? Are you ever going to leave the West Coast, or are you done? You're you're stuck there now. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I keep saying that I don't want California to push me out, but it's getting so crazy. I don't know. Uh, I live halfway between LA and San Francisco, so I'm remote from the worst of the craziness going on. But, you know, homelessness is showing up in remote rural areas of, you know, not far yeah. from where I am. And crime is sort of okay, but uh, I don't know. Um, and we'll see what they do tax-wise and otherwise. Uh, yeah. So we'll see. You know, my my, it's now too late, but I wanted to write this piece 15, 20 years ago. Rich wanted me to do it. And I just never got around to it about how California was ruining a lot of the country because of its retirees who mm. were like yep. the Pacific Northwest, like the San Juan islands and, yeah. and a lot of that stuff that was basically Goldwater country 30, 40 years ago and or 50 right. years ago now. And, um, but you have all these retirees from California, particularly public sector retirees who go there. Mm. And my, my line about this was always, you know, Bismarck had this great line about the Balkans. He said, the trouble with the Balkans is they produce more history than they can consume domestically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's the problem with California is that you guys produce more liberalism than you can consume domestically and you outsource it, to, you export it to the rest of the country. Yeah, that's right. Big problem. Yeah, Trump, Trump's wall was on the wrong border. I think that's true. <laughs> All right, my friend. Thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. I think we've steered clear of, you know, the... Uh, some of the uh, landmines that 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 we might have stepped on and all of this kind of stuff. And it's it's great to talk to you again. Well, you know, as I've been saying for, you know, five, six years now, some of my friends are for Trump. Some of my friends are against Trump. And I'm going to stick with my friends. That's what yeah, I try to no do. <laughs> you you are a keep the peace amongst the tribes guy. So I, I, I get that and I respect that. And um, and friendship is more important than politics anyway. Ah, um, that's right. Yeah. So that's fine by me. Um, I just 
disagree heartily with some of your friends. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, I, I disagree with some of my friends too. So, you know, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That's fine. <laughs> All right. Uh, Steve Hayward, thank you again. And look forward when you have the, at, at minimum, when this, the Evans book comes out, we'll have you back yeah. on, if not before. Hopefully in person too. I want to get out and about. I'm, we're all going crazy, right? I agree. I agree. Although yeah. I'm getting in the car this weekend and my family and we're going on a road trip and we're going to end up in Yosemite. So there's that. Oh, neat. Yeah. I can't give the exact location because then people might find me and that's not right. That's not a good idea. But <laughs> um, All right, Steve Edward, thank you so much for being on The Remnant. You can find him at Paraline and, and Twitter and all these kinds of, we'll put it all in the show notes, not to worry. Uh, thank you again. Okay, thank you. Okay, so Steve has left the uh, studio, the room, the conversation, whatever. It's great to talk to him again. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Steve Hayward. We, I, I think I was elusive to the fact that you know we probably have some disagreements about the contemporary right. Steve, as he mentioned, is a Claire monster, and I got my differences with some of the Claire monsters and all of that. But I have just boundless respect for Steve. He's just a he's a mensch. He's knows so much about so much and um and he's just a good guy so it was great to have him on and um we can have uh deeper disagreements in the fulsome of time in the fullness of time um i do want to apologize the original reason why we brokered the idea we came up with the idea at, at the suggestion of a lot of listeners to have steve back on is that we were going to do a worst president ever episode i didn't want to do that because um, it would require having a long conversation about Trump that I just don't want to have with Steve about it, all this stuff. I'm not making it sound like Trump's not, I mean, Steve's not some huge Trumper or anything like that. As he is clear, he's got his criticisms, but it just, it's too, uh, it's too soon to do that. Um, I think emotionally, but also just analytically about where Trump will fit in history. Um, and then we thought we'll just do an all out Woodrow Wilson bashing episode. We will do an all-out Woodrow Wilson bashing episode because um, God wants us to. But um, I wanted to do more prep for it. You know, it's been a while since I've gone through my massive collection of notes. It fills up a U-Haul of all. It's just basically one long single-spaced list. It takes up an entire U-Haul of all the reasons why Woodrow Wilson was bad. Um, but um, uh, I just couldn't get to all that. Anyway, we did not succeed, as I had hoped, in putting a whole bunch of shows in the can before I left. That means I will be doing some shows from the road. It also may mean that we have some substitute hosts. Uh, the two leaders in the trial by combat that um, we've been holding right now are Chris Starwalt and David French. Um, and it may be one or uh, the other of them. We will see if it becomes necessary at all. I'd rather not do that, but, um, I don't want to have, I don't want to go into a long break of podcasts. So, uh, no matter what, stay tuned because the remnant will, will, the remnant will endure. And I mean that in all the rich poetic ways. Um, anyway, uh, with that, uh, thanks again. Please become a paid member of the dispatch community. Please go to dispatch.com. Check things out. Please give us a nice review. If you're so inclined at various podcast warrens of podcast activity around the internet. And I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.